And please, if you have brought a Bible, please open to Luke chapter 23. Uh, You also have this text printed in the worship book that uh, you received or downloaded. Luke chapter 23 will be our primary text this evening. Matthew, Mark, Luke. If you get to John, go back to the left. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square. Grateful to gather with you this evening uh, as we consider what is an ominous but vital night for our faith as we have been following Jesus en route to this moment, en route to the city of Jerusalem. See, on the way to this night, en route to this moment, Jesus has invited us to hope, just like he did his earliest followers in the first century. On his way to the city, he invited people to hope. We consider the ancient vision that even Ezekiel had and found hope and faith that tomorrow actually could be better. Not just tomorrow in the age to come, but tomorrow, tomorrow. Like the kind of tomorrow we have tomorrow. But on the way also to this night, en route to this moment, Jesus has invited us to embrace power. Not the kind of power from this world uh, that James tells us is demonic and, and unspiritual and impure, but a kind of power that is from above. A kind of power that we celebrate as Jesus entered into the city as Messiah we found this kind of power, an ability to bring change and to experience change because of love, not because of fear and judgment. But now he goes to the cross on this night and in this moment. And so the question for us is what happens to all that hope? What happens to all of that power? The the early followers of Jesus were left to consider all of the messages of Jesus as they looked at their Lord, their rabbi, their teacher, their friend hanging on a cross. What happens to power and hope at the cross? Can tomorrow still be better if Jesus dies? Can love still bring change if Jesus dies? I think that's what people are wrestling with as Jesus gets closer and closer to the cross, and in particular, the moment he is crucified. See, on the way to the cross, we'll meet a number of different people. We'll meet a group of women who are weeping for Jesus, likely because they believe that hope is lost. We'll meet a group of rulers and soldiers and a criminal who are criticizing Jesus, likely believing that earthly power has won, but the power from above has lost. And then we'll meet one final person, a criminal, who neither weeps nor criticizes, but believes. He believes something which these other people, these other groups don't, and that's what I'd like to talk about. He believes that death is losing. I want to talk about what we believe most and how that changes how we look at the death of Jesus Christ. You see, we all believe something, don't we? Even people who have never been to a church gathering, who've never considered themselves religious, we all believe something. No matter what your worldview, philosophy, or religion, we all believe something. And we believe something about death. And we believe something about Jesus' death. See, the women and the crowd believed that Jesus was exposed by death, just like any and every other human being. But one of the criminals, he believed that Jesus was about to expose death. And so the question for us is, what do we believe? What do we believe about death? What do we believe about Jesus? When we come to verse 26 in Luke chapter 23, we first meet Jesus' sympathizers. We meet a group of women. They believe something about death and therefore something about Jesus. Let's see if we can relate. Look at Luke chapter 23, verse 26. 
As they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. So as Jesus is carrying this cross, his body is giving out. He's already been mocked and beaten. He's been suffering from the moment that Judas, one of his first disciples, kissed him and betrayed him and turned him over to the authorities. And so a man named Simon is seized to carry the cross of Jesus. And as he does so, we see a crowd begins to gather. In that crowd, Luke Luke identifies and he speaks about this particular group of women. He says they are mourning and lamenting for him. These women, and women like them, were a common fixture in the ancient Near East in executions and crucifixions. One scholar explains that women, these women, are not his own followers from Galilee, but local women who turned out to witness executions and provide opiates for, or opiates rather, for the condemned men. In other words, they're performing a ritual. They're going through some motions. They're treating the impending death of Jesus as if they had or or as if they were going to experience or seeing anyone die. This was just another funeral. This was just another death. And they believed underneath all of that, like perhaps you and I, that all death is final. That all death swallows up hope. That all death means mourning and lamenting. And so they weep for Jesus because to them, his death means the same thing as any and everyone else's death. They're weeping because they believe that death is exposing the demise of Jesus, just like death exposes all of our demise. They're weeping because they believe that death is conquering Jesus, like death conquers everybody. In response, Jesus corrects them. Look at verse 28. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nurse. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? In short, Jesus redirects their lament right? Did you notice that? Remember, these are not Jesus' followers. They're not weeping because they love him or have a a relationship with him. This is ceremony. This is perfunctory. And Jesus sort of enters into that rhythm. He enters into that routine and tells them they should be weeping for themselves, which seems a bit harsh. But this is exactly what Jesus does. He reverses the emotions and says, you're the ones who are worthy of lament. He uses this illustration. He says, because the demise of the wood that is green, in other words, him, an innocent man, is nothing compared to the demise that would come to the wood that is dry. In other words, them, sinful humanity. It's much worse. See, they believe in death more than they believe in Jesus. That Jesus will not have a rebuttal for death. That death is too powerful for Jesus. And I think we often have the same view. Death, after all, seems more real to us than anything. Death in our existence doesn't even wait for us to die. We have been to funerals and begun to count our days. We have heard the words of cancer and lamented at people's bedside. We know that death is a thief. Death is suffering and painful. Death is powerful. It invades our lives. 
See, whenever death and suffering and pain show up in our lives, it causes us even to believe that hope must be lost or at least it's very thin. But that's not true. It's not true in Jesus' case. You see, weeping exposes our demise, but it does not expose Jesus' demise. Death does not expose hope. Death does not expose Jesus. Death exposes us. Death causes us to face our vulnerability. Perhaps tonight we may come in some measure weeping for Jesus. And Jesus says to us, save your tears. Do not weep for me. Next, we meet Jesus' critics. We meet a few different people. There's a criminal in this mix. There are rulers in this mix. There's soldiers. And like the women, they too believe something about death. They too believe something about Jesus. Let's see if we can relate to them. Look at verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots and divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourselves. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. It's excruciating to watch this. To witness this ongoing barrage of criticism which continues to come to Jesus' way even as he hangs on a cross. What is more deplorable than criticizing a suffering person? And this we see repeated over and over again. Jesus is crucified. They divide his garments. They hurled insults at him, particularly pointed at his power. Did you notice that? Notice how often the idea of salvation is at the heart of their criticism. The rulers scoffed that he saved others, but apparently had no power to save himself. The soldiers mocked him that, that if he's really the king, that he'd save himself. Even one of the criminals, were told, railed at him that if he's really the Messiah, he would save himself. And oh, by the way, you'd also save us. I think we all have ideas about the way that Jesus is supposed to save people, don't we? And if we would have written the script, none of that would have included death. And so even our own vision of power and of salvation meets its demise when we face the cross. The way of power that we believe is most profitable, most effective, falls apart when we come to the cross. See, essentially what all this mockery is presuming is that if Jesus was really powerful, he would not be in this position. Let's think about it. What powerful people do we know who are celebrated and venerated in this life are those who give up themselves over to death for the sake of others? They are often not the ones that the world applauds, that even we try to be like. The last people we want to be like are the people that die. We want to avoid death and suffering and pain at all costs. He can't save. He's not really Savior. After all, this is not how we believe that we want to be saved or how we believe that tomorrow will be better or that anybody saves anybody. 
Therefore, the conclusion is he must be weak. He must not really be Savior. Yet the brilliance of Jesus' power is found in his response. Look again at verse 34. In response, Jesus forgives them. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus forgives his critics in the middle of being assaulted by them. I need years sometimes to forgive people for what they've said and done to me because I believe that they've stolen my power, my power questioned my authority. Jesus forgives his critics in the middle of their assault. In fact, in his dying, Jesus is in the middle of paying for the sinfulness, their sinfulness as they speak. In other words, Jesus demonstrates real strength while he is being mocked for being weak. Why is it that forgiveness is such a mark of strength and not weakness? Theologian Miroslav Volf explains that to be just is to condemn the fault and, because of the fault, to condemn the doer as well. But to forgive is to condemn the fault but to spare the doer. That's what a forgiving God does. On the cross, Jesus is making a way for the doer of sinful deeds to be forgiven while at one and the same time condemning sin. He says, Father, forgive them, the doer, because they, they, what they do is sinful, the deed, and that's why I'm here to pay the penalty for that sin so that they don't have to. Now, church, that's power. That's power. These rulers and soldiers and criminals cannot even conceive of a power like this. They believe that death is more powerful than Jesus. They believe that in death more than they believe in Jesus, as we often do. Death seems more real to us than God when we face death. This is why many of us even questioned our faith or questioned God whenever death shows up in our lives. You see, criticism and what these individuals are doing really does not expose Jesus either, but it exposes our own hearts, how quick we are to criticize the Lord, the one who saves us, in the manner in which he does the saving. I think it's because we're kind of terrified because we know the words of Jesus that he says, if anyone is going to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. We know if the one that we follow dies, we're going to have to die too. And so we are pleading with him to find another way to power, to the good life and to flourishing because we don't want to suffer like him. See, death does not expose the power from above. Death does not expose Jesus. Death exposes us and our poor view and anemic view of power in this age. Perhaps tonight you are critical of Jesus and his death, believing that death is more powerful than him, more powerful than God. And what does Jesus say in response? Father, forgive them. Finally, we meet the other criminal. We meet a guilty man with an entirely different vision and belief about death, and therefore a very different vision and belief about Jesus. Look at verse 40. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, 
Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Notice the first thing that the man acknowledges is that he has been exposed, that he is sinful, that he is guilty. He admits and implores the other to confess that they are guilty together and receiving exactly what they deserve. What? Death. Death exposes him. Death exposes it and makes plain his sin. Death exposes his hopelessness and weakness. Do you see? Then he turns to Jesus in his weakness, in his brokenness, in his sin, and he believes something about Jesus too. That Jesus is innocent. That Jesus has done nothing wrong. That death and consequence and pain and suffering have not exposed the weakness of Jesus, but in, in, in contrary are demonstrating his power and his hope, and his love. This man believes that Jesus is about to come into his kingdom. Everyone looks at Jesus and think that all hope is about to be lost, that all power is gone. This man looks at Jesus and he goes, I know you're coming into your kingdom right now. Will you take me with you? He sees death very differently. He sees Jesus very differently. This man believes that Jesus' hope goes beyond death, church. This man believes that Jesus' power overwhelms death, that death is not exposing Jesus, that Jesus is about to expose death itself, that Jesus is about to open up a way beyond death, that his kingdom is about to rule and reign, and he calls it paradise. I wonder if you believe this tonight. You see, the great irony of the Christian story is that the very thing we might believe exposes the story as false and unhelpful and unhopeful is the exact thing which reveals the power and hope and beauty and majesty of our Lord. Author Fleming Rutledge says, without the cross at the center of the Christian proclamation, the Jesus story can be treated as just another about a charismatic spiritual figure. It is the crucifixion that marks out Christianity as something definitively different in the history of religion. In other words, death does not expose our hope and power and faith. Jesus exposes death. See, the cross does not end hope. Without the cross, there is no hope. The cross does not conquer the heavenly powers or the power from above. Without the cross, there is no power. The cross does not disprove our faith. Without the cross, there is no faith. See, perhaps tonight, in this moment, you are weeping and Jesus says, save your tears. In this moment, this moment tonight, perhaps you are critical of Jesus and believe that death has exposed him and Jesus says to you, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. But perhaps tonight, in this moment, you believe that Jesus is more hopeful, more powerful, more faithful than death itself. And Jesus says to you and me, I will see you in paradise. The hard truth that we face tonight is that death exposes all of us. But the good news of this night is that Jesus exposes death. Heavenly Father, help us to build our lives on that truth. Help us to find stability in forgiveness. Help us to find hope in your power, help us to find flourishing and joy in the joy that is set out 
that you anticipated our Lord on the other side of the cross, full union with your Father, Jesus, and full unity with your church. So we bless you for what this night means. We desire to be more and increasingly mindful of the value and beauty and truth of what you have done in and through your Son as he took our place on the tree, on the cross, bore our penalty, bore our shame and guilt, exposing death and giving us life. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.